up, guys? Brooksy. Just wanted to say, hey, thank you guys for the support. I heard a bunch of you have shot my name at the golf tournament today. I know I'm not playing, but thank you guys for showing support. And if your time was, I don't know, say cut short at the golf tournament today, uh, DM Nicola Ultra, and we're going to be giving out 50 cases of beer to the first 50 people. Um, in case your time was cut short, had any trouble at the tournament, but just as a thank you for showing support. Thank you guys, appreciate it. Brooks Kepka giving out free beer. Fans were shouting his name at Bryson DeChambeau. We'll get into that in a second here when Ian Leggett joins me for RBC Off the Tee. My name is Joey Vendetta. It is Saturday, June the 5th. It is the Joey Vendetta Show. Coming up in hour number three, former major leaguer Ben Verlander will join us. Halfway through the hour, of course, we have the Blue Jays in the second game of their series against Houston. They got smoked yesterday. Hopefully it won't happen again. Ross Stripling on the mound, 3 o'clock, and of course we'll preview that, amongst other things, with Ben Verlander. As well, we'll be joined by Chris Contos. It's playoff hockey, and Contos had a great run as a national hockey leaguer, specifically one year with Tampa. We'll talk to him at the top of hour number three. Ben Rothenberg will talk tennis, the French Open, Naomi Osaka, all kinds of things to get into on the tennis front. Robbie Baker from the Tragically Hip. They play the Junos, the hip do, with Feist tomorrow night. We'll talk a little hockey with him. And Sean Avery, author, content producer, podcast host, and all-around you-know-what disturber will join us at the bottom of this hour. Some of the headlines this week that we may or may not get into. Floyd Mayweather, Logan Paul, that's going tonight. Coach K's calling it a career. Will the NCAA basketball circuit be the same without him? Sabres won the draft lottery. Mark Shifley suspended, of course. The Leafs blow a 3-1 series lead, 18 straight years, and not getting out of the first round. And those are our text questions today. Text us at 590-590, and we'll also take your calls in the last segment of the hour. You're in charge of the Toronto Maple Leafs. What do you do this offseason? A simple question. I'd like to hear from my friends in Calgary, Vancouver, Ottawa, Toronto, or elsewhere. And you can also comment on the Mark Shifley suspension, four games for his hit on Jake Evans, Habs up 2 nothing. Carey Price looking unbelievable. How does that Shea Weber for P.K. Subban trade look right about now? Hmm. Vegas wins last night. Series 2-1 to one now. They won at home. Nice to see 16,000 people. And as I said, the Jays blown out in the series opener. Clippers pushed the Mavericks to a Game 7. I was hoping Kawhi was going to lose and join the Lakers. We'll get into that later. But now, as always, it is my pleasure to welcome my co-host and the general manager of the St. George's Golf Club in Toronto, Ian Leggett for RBC Off the Tee. Lego, welcome back to real life and humanity. You're finally out of quarantine. <laughs> How was your first day as a free man? It felt good. It does feel good. Did and, you go uh, out? You know, did you, did you uh, go just, out hey, last way, night? Did you? Like at twelve oh one. Actually, I was out of quarantine yesterday. House. Yesterday I was good. Yesterday I was good. Yesterday I was, you went out I was yesterday. a free man. Yesterday. 
Okay. I did. Yeah, I was I was permitted to leave the premises yesterday. It didn't quite feel like the escape scene at a Shawshank Redemption, but it was close. It was close. And what was the first thing you did? I came straight to work. Check on the members, the make sure uh, you know St. George's is still uh, upright. It, it survived yeah. without me. And All good. how the is it? The members are happy. We're golfing again. It's fantastic, buddy. I mean, golf huh. courses are in great condition in the GTA. So, I mean, it's been a, it's a great, great weekend. We're having a phon- phenomenal weekend here. So we're going to get into a little bit on the Memorial here, and which is the tournament going this weekend. A couple of Canadians in the, in the 30s as far as the field goes. And we'll talk to Graham Dillette in just a little bit. But listen, I got to ask you a question that's that's kind of golf related because I met Mark Shifley at your golf tournament, which hasn't happened in the last couple of years, but is a fantastic tournament and and raises money for suicide prevention and, and awareness. And I met Mark Shifley at your tournament. What did you think of the hit and what yeah. did you think of the suspension? Um. You know, I, I think it, it's such a fast-paced game, and emotion comes into that. I didn't like the hit personally. Um, I think the you know, the you know the punishment fit the crime in this circumstance. I mean, I'm not a ref. I mean, we, everybody's going to have an opinion on this. I mean, there's I'm watching it on social media, and they're saying he shouldn't be permitted back till Evans comes back, and you know he should be gone. He should have got ten games, or you know, multitude of different, you know, uh, you know, you know. Dis, you know discussion points on this but i mean it is what it is you're playing a full can't contact game things happen you know and and it happened and there was a lot of motion in that game and we want emotion we we love to see this and there's not always going to be clean hits all the time and you know i wouldn't say it was a dirty hit um it was an emotional hit uh and i think that the punishment fit the crime what do you about you <sighs> As, I don't disagree with you. It's a it's a fast game. Things happen in, in a hurry. I, I didn't like Shifley's response after when when he had his, his press availability. I, I didn't think he was I don't think he was contrite enough. But you know what? At the end of the day, people are going to they're going to react to things the way they want to react. Uh, I thought that, you know, there are people that had to take that. Keep your head up. And I agree with that. Evans should not have had his head down. He kind of took it for granted that that people are going to let up. And Shifley didn't let up. He's a competitor. You play in the National Hockey League. You should keep your head up. He should have been ready to get his to, to get rocked because he was trying to put the game away with an empty net goal. Uh, I, I don't think that, that Shifley meant to hurt him, but I'm I'm sure he meant to send a message no. that yeah, you scored an empty net goal and we're not going away. And unfortunately, he's been suspended, and now they're going to have to deal with one of their best players being out of the lineup. And as you saw last night, it was a close game, but Carey Price was the difference. I, I, I don't think it was a dirty hit. I don't think he 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 tried to do no. anything malicious. But man, did he lay him out, and he rocked him. So oh, and he's paid the price for it. Of, I, I literally and figuratively, there. absolutely. Yeah. Did. So so Graham Dillette joins us now. Graham Dillette, a fine golfer and a ball striker extraordinaire of course he's a calgary flames fan but grant welcome to the program first and foremost how are you today thanks man what's what's the but from calgary flames fan but 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 you're not watching your team in the playoffs that's what the but is but i'm not watching my team 
Yeah, they're not playing right now. Now, Graham, I want to ask you about the Shifley hit because that's one of our text uh, text questions today. Was it a dirty hit? What did you think of the punishment? It was a hard hit, that's for sure. I mean, uh, I I mean, I think that it was a little bit too much of a punishment. Um, that being said, I mean, I can see the argument both ways. I mean, it's one of those things as a radio show, you could probably debate it both ways and half the people would agree with you and half wouldn't. But, um, yeah, it was a big hit. I mean, he was – the way I look at it, he was trying to save a goal and save the game and give themselves a chance to win. And, um, you know, I've seen a lot of guys, you know, ex-NHLers or current NHLers are like, what's he supposed to do? Start start gliding at the blue line and just give him a little poke check. And um, so, yeah, you can see it both ways, but uh, it was a big hit. You just hope the guy's all right. Yeah, that is the big thing. So, buddy, speaking of, uh, you know, you've been on the shelf for a little while now and, and trying to get back to playing. But, uh, you know, I love, if you're not following uh, Graham Dillette on Instagram, you've got to follow him because especially right now when we're hitting the peak of barbecue season, this man is a barbecue pit master. So um, I love barbecuing. I know Joey loves barbecuing. If I'm barbecuing something right now, what am I going with? Well, yeah, I've been busy on the grill. I, actually, it's kind of funny that I just I just kind of did a partnership with Think Turkey, and so they they just basically are running a campaign across Canada right now, um, kind of similar to like the Got Milk type thing, where just raising, uh, I guess, you know, the knowledge that you know turkey is a good thing to be barbecuing. So I've been doing actually quite a bit of that. We recorded some videos and made up some recipes, and those will be kind of hitting the. Uh, um, airwaves, I guess, so to say, or so to speak, soon. But uh, yeah, think turkey.ca is the uh, website, and uh, it's been fun. But yeah, I've been uh, doing a lot of different things on the grill, and it is kind of that time of the year where things are starting to really fire up outside, so it's exciting. Graham, you tweeted they're pleated, they're cropped, and they're proof that good pants never go out of style. Shop now. And you said, this ad came across my timeline. Are they serious? <laughs> Those have been out of style for 20 years from Dockers. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't funny. But yeah, that just came across. I'm like, what do you mean not out of style? I'm like, when's the last time you saw someone wearing a pleated a pair of pleated, uh, you know, golf pants or whatever? And if, there's, if anyone is, then uh, they should probably – not be wearing those <laughs> be my uh, piece of advice for them. But yeah, it was kind of funny. <laughs> so we got Memorial this week and you know, it's one of the few weeks uh, so far this year on the PJ tour. We haven't seen a Canadian heading into the weekend in the top 10, but we got Nick Taylor and Corey Connors uh, kind of stuck in the middle of the field here. But this place is, it's one of my favorite places to play on tour. I mean, Jack just does it right, and a golf course is fantastic. But, you know, when you look, uh, you know, back on your career and that moment that you had, I can still remember it, you know, like it happened yesterday at the President's Cup with Jason Day, the chip in on 18. You know, when you look back on that and the emotion and the excitement of it, I remember when that happened, it was like, here's the closest thing Graham Dillette's going to get to score in a playoff goal in the, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. <laughs> but do you how, how do you think about that when you look at this tournament this week and, and thinking of that moment? Yeah, that's actually a pretty good way to put it. I mean, like, I remember I played with GMAC, uh, a few weeks before the President's Cup, and obviously it was my first one, well, my only one, but at the time I was thinking it was just my first one, but and he's like, the cool thing about the Ryder Cup for him was you can 
use all this emotion that you normally just kind of would And he's like, just make it organic. Like, if you don't want to do it, then don't do it. But if it comes across, don't hold back. And I kind of remembered him saying that, and it wasn't, um, you know, anything planned, but it was, I just lost, I just lost it. I was like, I blocked out pretty much. But that was a cool moment in in my career, maybe one of the highlights. Uh, later that day, I hold a bunker shot against Steve to beat him in singles on the same hole too. So that was an awesome week. Memorial in Muirfield Village really is. Probably, it's in my top three probably golf courses on the PGA Tour. And then just as far as tournaments, you know, Lego, it's like yeah. they take care of the guys so well there. Like Jack just really, really does it right. I mean, it's probably the best food of the year. You walk into the clubhouse, everyone takes off their hat. There's like this real like respect for Jack and his club. And, uh, you know, the players love it. It's an awesome practice facility. And the golf course speaks for itself. The greens are insane, super fast. And it's kind of one of those places – so almost like Augusta-like where you can use slopes and have some kick-in birdies, but if you're on the wrong side of those slopes, if you're not controlling your irons coming into the greens, they can make you look really, really silly. So, you know, the scoring can actually still be pretty good out there, right, depending on the conditions, um, but it, but it's also an extreme test. Graham, the, yep. the RBC PGA Scramble, has been really successful, especially in the last several years. Last year, they set a record for for golfers signing up as well this year. And for those of you listening, rbcpgascramble.com is where you can go. I want to ask your if you could give a, a, a novice golfer, a, a golfer that's trying to get better, obviously someone that's not a professional golfer, but somebody that, that is a member of a club and, and is just trying to improve their game is there are there any exercises or kind of practice drills that that you could other than just hitting the ball and practicing? Your, I know all the straightforward stuff, but is there anything any light you could shed on something that you would advice that you would give even exercises for for somebody that's just trying to improve their game? Yeah, I think one of the big things you see mostly from playing pro ams and stuff is. Um, you know, a 10 handicap or a 15 handicap can become a 10 without even improving, without improving their actual physical game. I see so many people, they can't read a lie properly or try to hit the hero shot um, more often than they should. And I think managing your game is one of the big things. And like, we'll be playing in programs and, you know, on the PJ tour, the majority of the time, you got pretty good rough and guys will be hitting three wood and I'll or pull a three wood and I'll go over and look at the line. I'm like, but, but, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like, I would probably be hacking out like a mid to short iron out of there. Like, Take your sandwich, get this thing back out and play, and let's move on. And then I think the other thing is that guys and gals, they just take on pins way too much, uh, you know, depending on your skill set. Like, I mean, if you're in the middle of – if you're aiming for the middle of every single green, I think that's a pretty good way to play golf, and it'll take a lot of the stress off, you know, any kind of short game. Um, you know, if you're, if you're short-sided or anything like that, taking on pins, you didn't. So I think it's more management – as much as it is anything, and uh, you can take the exact game that you have, manage it better, and probably drop your handicap by, you know, 20% overnight. It's good. Good tip. When, when you're – look – when we're <laughs> Joey, did you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> I basically just told Perfect. me to quit did playing you write golf. write it down? Anyway. Actually, yeah, the key yeah. is, did you actually <laughs> write it down? I want you to write it down, okay? No, I actually started my barbecue, <laughs> but thanks, Ian. <laughs> Grabbing turkeys. So, 
you know, when you're looking at the tour right now, and and we, you know, we've had a bunch of the guys on over the over the last few weeks already. And what do you see? Uh, you know, I know it's, it's it's always difficult. You know, I you know missed a almost two years of my career having to with injuries and watching you know the tour unfold every single week. But when you're watching the Canadians play, and you were kind of right at the front end of this wave that is is happening of all the great players with Corey and, and, and Nick and Mackenzie. Um, what do you think all of this means to the game of golf in Canada and watching that and watching Brooke and this flow of great players on the PGA and LPGA tour uh, from Canada? Like I said, every single week, there's a Canadian flag in the top 10 on the leaderboard. Yeah, it's been awesome to watch. You know, it's obviously it's something I would like to be part of still, but uh, as an outsider kind of looking at it just the same way as you guys are, it's just incredible. Like you said, how often we have Canadians up there, and obviously what Brooks doing in the women's game is uh, off the charts. Um, and then, you know, the, the pipeline coming down, too, with Taylor Pendrith getting his card, and he'll be on tour, and it's, yeah. uh, it's definitely exciting. And I think, you know, you know Weirzy, and I mean, he's the reason why – I chase the game and I know I'm not, I can't really speak for the other guys on tour, but I know that he was like a big part of that. And uh, hopefully, you know, the guys that are playing now are inspiring the young guys and girls across Canada to do the same. And I think now, um, you know, the young kids, they see that not only like, I mean, when I was coming up or, you know, junior golfer, it was Mike kind of at the start of his career, Stephen Ames, yourself, Lego, and then, you know, a few other guys are kind of, you know, in and out a little bit. Dave Barr, obviously. and um, But now I think with, it's just like you said, every single week there's someone there. And it, now it's no longer a dream. It's like, how do I get here? Um, you know, what do I have to do to work? Because it's proven that as a Canadian, you can reach the top levels of golf. Graham, you, you just mentioned something, right? That you've, you said you're looking at it kind of like an outsider like we are when when we're talking about Canadian golfers and and being on the tour, we've discussed your you know your challenges and, and being hurt. But at, what about the what about the coaching and the development side? I know you're you're still too young for that, and you still want to play. But are you have you ever thought about getting into it in terms of working with Golf Canada or going and and coaching somewhere or running a program? Um, you know, at this point, I'm still working on getting back to playing so that's kind of all that sort of other stuff is on the back burner um but it's definitely something i would consider um moving forward if the right opportunity kind of came up i mean we're pretty grounded here now in boise um so it'd be something that i would have to do you know without having to move my family and that kind of thing but if the right thing came up and i thought that i could make an impact and help some kids out and uh whatever it would be then yeah it's something i would definitely consider but I'm not quite there yet. Well, buddy, I know you got to run, take the girls to a birthday party. But before we go, you know, as Joey just alluded to, and, and charity events and not being able to do what we've done in the past to raise money for those charities and those things in our life that really mean a lot to us. And I know you, you and Ruby have a fan, fantastic charity. Um, what are you guys doing to kind of keep connected to that and still maintain and raise money for that? Yeah, so unfortunately last year, like pretty much every other uh, golf tournament, we canceled. Um, but we did just uh, finalize the plans to do one down here in Idaho again uh, this year uh, in September. 
So we're kind of back, um, you know, back at it, I guess, is, is uh, you know, we're kind of back to where we were when we left off, I guess, before COVID hit us. But, uh, yeah, that's something that Ruby and I are extremely proud of. And, um, you know, especially probably more her than me. She's the one who kind of puts in all the hours behind the closed doors and nobody really sees. But, you know, we've uh, we've raised, I think, over a couple million dollars now over the years. And uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to be able to give back like that. And I'm glad that as things are starting to open up. I know you guys aren't quite as open as we are down here, but, um, things are kind of starting to feel a little bit back to normal, and hopefully that uh, gets you know the charity golf tournaments, all that kind of stuff going here again as well. Well, thanks, buddy. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Good luck uh, working as hard as you are. I know that's a grind to get back after the multitude of injuries you've gone through, but uh, I know you're passionate. Uh, just use Weirzy as the example. Look at that old guy. <laughs> I know it's amazing. It's so good to see. I mean, I've been texting him off and on here as he's playing. It's just like I, I can't believe it. It it seemed like he was kind of I wouldn't say done, but like he was just struggling. And all of a sudden, he's hard work, hard work, hard work. And like you know, like I I don't know many guys that work as hard as Mike has his entire career. And uh, I'm glad to see the kind of fruits of his labor starting to show here again. And he's kind of resurrected his career, and he's having fun. And it's good to see. Excellent to have you on the program. We look forward to, to getting you on again soon. That's RBC Off the Tee. It's Joey Vendetta along with Ian Leggett here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. We have a few minutes here before we wrap up the segment. And, Ian, a couple of things. First, I want to get your take on off the top of the show. I played a clip of Brooks Kepka talking about how Michelob was going to send free beer to some fans that were asked to leave the course when they were chanting Brooksy, Brooksy uh, with Bryson DeChambeau hitting what are your thoughts on on the rivalry is it good for golf for these guys to be going at it like this you know what i i i don't really like it and it's funny i i got in in you know just a quick comment on twitter today and you know someone made a comment about this and bryson dechambeau is the geek on the pj tour and this is sort of leading a little bit as kids you know, gravitate to everything that they see on social media to some type of a bullying. And I don't like it, you know, and it made sense. It kind of resonated with me when, you know, I know this is two adults and, you know, maybe it's scripted, maybe they're having a little fun here. And, uh, but I just don't, I don't like where this could potentially go with younger kids. And, you know, as, as you and I talk about all the time about mental health, uh, suicide, where this can lead to from a bullying perspective and how kids are attacked through social media. I'm, I'm, I'm going to change my perspective on the whole thought of it's kind of all fun and games. I don't think it's so much fun and games when, you know, potentially younger kids are gravitating to this type of behavior and what that could mean to, you know, in a, in a bullying uh, perspective. So, I, 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 it resonated with me when someone made that comment uh, today on social media, and that's kind of where I'm going to go with it right now. And I, I think we got to be careful what we do on social media and how it gets picked up by the youth. Do you think – so you said that you think Bryson DeChambeau is kind of like the nerd on the tour. Do you mean he's a bit of an outcast because of the way he's – change the game and the perception and maybe some of the backlash that he's been getting because he doesn't quote unquote fit in. 
I think so. Absolutely. And then, you know, he's taking a complete, he's taking a scientific approach to that. You know, I, I think it was Bill Gates said, be, you know, always be nice to geeks because you might be working for them one day. So <laughs> I actually said that on, on, on Twitter today. And that's a bit like Bryson DeChambeau. Even the campaigns they build around, you know, his commercial time and sponsorships, it's all about, you know, here's the science nerd and, you know, this approach that he's taking to the game. So absolutely, I, I think he is a, I wouldn't call him an outcast because he's not playing the game like an outcast. He's, his search for perfection is a little bit different than everybody else has taken. And he's taking a very high level scientific approach. He's looking at it, you know, like he's trying to solve something here. And the game of golf has been played for a very, very long time. There is no solution. This The game of golf, I always tell people, is not a Rubik's Cube. Can't be solved. Uh, you may be able to capture it in a bottle once in a while, but it's going to escape on you. Uh, but that's the difference between him and everybody else. And, you know, there were players that did this a little. You know, there was Mac O'Grady and Bobby Clampett went down this road. Um, many years ago, and there's this been this scientific approach or, you know, attempt at it for many, many years. And that's where Bryson's sitting right now, and he is. He's on the outside looking in at, you know, the athleticism of Brooks and Rory and Justin Thomas and DJ and how they play the game more on feel and, and emotion. Uh, so, absolutely, I, I think he is a bit of an outcast on the PGA Tour. All right, Lego, that wraps up another edition of RBC Off the Tee. I'm glad you got your get-out-of-jail-not-so-free card and you're back on the links and at St. George's where you belong. I'm going we'll to try to find my uh, case of Bud Light. I'm trying to get find my case of Bud Light now. <laughs> you deserve it. We'll talk, to you. we'll talk to you again next week, pal. Enjoy the weekend. Have a good show, buddy. Thanks. All right, that is RBC Off the Tee, Ian Leggett. And we're going to take the break and come back. Still on the program, Ben Rothenberg will join us to talk the French Open. And he's a freelance writer for the New York Times and has some great insight. Chris Contos was a Stanley Cup playoff hero. He'll join us as well in our number three, Ben Verlander. Talk some Major League Baseball. Robbie Baker from the Tragically Hip. The Hip with Feist tomorrow night on the Juno Awards. And up next, a guy that has a podcast. He'll say happy birthday to you on Cameo. And the NHL invented a rule for him. He'll join us next here on the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. When you talk about history, there's, there's a lot of history where you say no team has won with a European captain, and then someone wins with a European captain. No team has won with so many Russians, and then a team wins with Russians. We can talk about all the things that stand in our way, or we can try and figure out ways to get around them and to get the job done. And that's what I'm here to say, is that as, as horrible and as devastated as we feel today, we are not going to stop until we accomplish this. We are going to do this here in Toronto with this group. That is Toronto Maple Leaf President Brendan Shanahan after the Toronto Maple Leafs were eliminated by the Montreal Canadiens in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. My name is Joey Vendetta. Welcome back to the Joey Vendetta Show here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. And we're asking you a simple question. And that question is, you run the Toronto Maple Leafs. What do you do after another first round exit? Do you do nothing? 
Do you clean house? I'm leaving it to you. Text us at 590-590. We'll also take your calls in the next segment. But it is my pleasure now to welcome a longtime friend to the program. This guy has done everything, including play in the NHL, but he's worked at ad agencies. He's been an entrepreneur on multiple levels, owned restaurants. He's an author. And he's one of the most interesting people to have played in the National Hockey League. He's very opinionated, very loyal, supports his causes. My pleasure to welcome to the program, Sean Avery. Sean, thank you very much for being here. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good, Joey. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Before we talk about uh, the Leafs and the playoffs and, and hockey, I want to ask you a question because you you put out a book, a memoir called Ice Capades, a memoir of fast living and tough hockey, and it had a different title in Canada. And by the way, I don't know if I've ever thanked you on the radio for including me in the book, but thank you for including me in the book. I, I get a little mention with a bunch of other guys about Los Angeles. Why were the titles different in Canada and the U.S.? Um, you know, I think that the uh, publishing world, I think the publishing world is a very confusing world. And uh, I also think that they, much like everything, what gets in the way of success sometimes is too many cooks in the kitchen. And for some reason, they wanted to have a different title in the U.S. Uh, than Canada. And, you know, I think when you're anyone that's written a book and has dealt with publishers, you have to understand that there's only a certain amount of battles that you want to fight. And mm -hmm. that wasn't one of that wasn't one of them. So I just said, you know what, <laughs> uh, you guys go for it. So, yeah, real head did, scratcher. You did. So let me ask you this. Uh, proportionately, did it do better in one country than the other? Or was it pretty equal? Um, I think it was fairly equal. I think it was fairly equal. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're on our third, our third run printing it from a, from a hard copy standpoint, but, uh, it was, yeah, it, it did. I would say it was about 50, 50 as surprising as that sounds. Um, but you got to remember, like, obviously I played in pretty, two pretty big markets. So, uh, in LA and New York. And I think that those just from a population standpoint, probably help for us sales. Um, but no, I, I, it, it, it did well. It did well. I mean, I, you can only really measure it in the fact that I think I've almost broken even on, um, <laughs> on the, on the advance, which is really, you know, I don't know how many people actually break even, uh, where you don't owe, owe the uh, publisher money for the rest of your life, so you never really make any money outside of the advance. Um, but it's also very difficult to audit, and I, I, I think, yeah, that that's a that's really a dying art form. Like I would say to anyone, if if anyone's writing a book now, um, write a book and put it out on your own. I mean, I actually bought. Uh, when the pandemic hit Penguin, and I don't know if they did this to raise money or what, but they sold a lot of their inventory. And I think I bought 800, 800 books for $2 a book or something. I, I've made just almost as much money selling the books on my own to people than my advance. So it, it's a crazy industry. 
but yeah, if you if you write a book, put it out your put it out on your on your own. Just sell it yourself, and sell it through your social media. And you know, it, it's the world's changing for sure. I am Sean Avery. You can follow him on Instagram. You can follow him on Twitter. Definitely worthwhile on both platforms. And Sean, when you when you talk about we talk about the book and how well it did. Another thing that I thought was great was that you personally narrated the book on, on audible. What was that experience like? Oh God. I mean, I wish I could have a redo now because obviously, you know, uh, you know what it's like. I I've been, I think I've done 80 podcasts on my own and your voice just changes. You understand how to talk onto, uh, into a microphone it was a it was a painful experience. I think it took me four or five different sessions. I had never done anything like that before. I had no idea. You know, it, it was incredible learning your cadence, understanding how to end a period to really kind of make your point. It was kind of a master class in in understanding your voice. Um, I listened to it today you know, four or five years later and wish that I could have a do over for sure. But um, yeah, I, I realized why there's people that do that professionally. Like that's their job. They read audiobooks. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. The book is definitely worthwhile picking up ice capades, a memoir of fast living and tough hockey. That's what it's titled in the U S and Canada. It's offside my life crossing the line our guest is Sean Avery. Sean, we'll get into the, the playoffs here and some of your takes. And if you follow Sean on Twitter or Instagram, you'll see he has some pretty interesting thoughts on on the playoffs specifically right now and also on politics and, and COVID and some of the ways things have been handled. But first, I got to ask you a question about something that you apparently love doing. You're so good at it. You get so many thank yous from the people that you do it for. It's a platform called Cameo. And it's where people of note and people of maybe not not so notable are on. And you can pay them a certain amount of money to send a video greeting to someone you love or someone you hate. You have taken to this thing like a duck to water. You don't overcharge people. I think your rate's 70 or 80 bucks, which is completely reasonable. Tell me about the platform and how you've grown into it, because it seems like you really enjoy doing these. Yeah, it was kind of uh, very serendipitous. Um, it was around for a while, and then I think once the pandemic uh, started, it just kind of was a perfect storm, and it exploded. It became sort of uh, acceptable to as as talent or whatever you would call the people that are on it uh, to be on it. So, you know it's really incredible for a few reasons. One, it, it obviously gives you the ability to interact with fans Two, from a selfish standpoint. I love doing them because being in the entertainment business now, essentially you have to work quickly on your feet. You're given bullet points, a small overview, and you get to create art with it. It's sort of this, um, this, this, incredible opportunity every single time you get a cameo it's a new blank palette and you have to deliver and i also take a lot of pride in it because you know people are paying you money it's it's not like an autograph that whole memorabilia business was around a long time and i think cameo is now sort of taking it over um 
and I take pride in delivering. And, and really, they're so much fun. They're a ton of fun. Whether or not you're wishing somebody happy birthday or Father's Day that's coming up or, you know, I, I've been doing a lot this last week of roasting Leaf fans where friends have, have I said, if you have a Leaf friend, if you have a friend that's a Leaf fan, uh, this is your opportunity. Book a cameo and let me do my thing. Um, but, yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I usually do an hour a day of cameos. Um, it's, it's a job. It's part of my routine. Uh, and, boy, oh, boy, you can really get after it. You know, it, it, if whoever books the cameo, the key to it is just give me bullet points and send me in directions. So if your buddy is a, a Leaf fan who has a, a Leaf tattoo on his calf, that's all I need, right? And then I can just go with it. Um, but it, it's really incredible. And I think it's the future of, you know, we see this big, this big push right now with uh, cards are back and, and people are opening up the card packs and that's the whole thing. But I remember getting a, an autograph as a kid from an NHL player. I can't even imagine. I would have died if I had got a video, a personalized video from Brett Hall when I was 12 years old. And that's essentially what Cameo is. Um, and then there's a lot of them that are, you know, somewhat motivational or uh, just constant reminders. Like if you wake up and you got a little bit of a cloud over your head and you need to get your ass moving, uh, I'm your guy, right? And you can always reference that video. Yeah, I, I think it's the future. And I, 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 they, they do a great job running the company and the, and the, the tech on it. it. It's really well done. So – Look, between doing the the audible for your book and the cameo and seeing you on Instagram, you've really I'm not going to say come into your own, but you can see that you've worked on your presentation and and what you're saying and giving your and your message and and as the world media landscape has changed from from traditional media into digital media and you've seen people be able to create on their own and you look at what's happened even on you know on TikTok now there's there's people on there that have millions of followers that I wouldn't know, maybe you wouldn't know, but they're able to garner an audience. And you're a guy that is extremely opinionated and you give your thoughts on different topics. We played Brendan Shanahan off the top, talking about how the Leafs are going to win with this group. And you played with Brendan in in New York. And I remember coming to the opening of of your your club, your restaurant club in New York, and Brendan was was there, and Warren seventy seven is the name of the place. And I remember seeing Brendan there. So you 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 were close to Brendan. I don't know if you are now, but what is Sean Avery's advice to the Toronto Maple Leaf fans and and Brendan Shanahan and the Leaf front office right now when they lost an incredibly close series to a superstar goalie who played like a superstar? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, um, I can tell you that Brendan Shanahan wakes up every single day hoping that his team plays as hard as they can play. He's also totally focused on winning a Stanley cup. I mean, he's the ultimate competitor. He's won Stanley cups. Um, Brendan Shanahan's not interested in, in mediocrity. Now in saying that I can still have a conversation with uh, Shani and say, you know, 
this is what I would want to do. And I guess that comes from two parts. Being a fan, my first Toronto Maple Leaf game was 1992. I was there with my dad. They played the St. Louis Blues. Uh, I've, been, I've been cheering for the Leafs for a long time. Um, with the exception of a couple of years with, with Dougie, it, it's, been, it's been tough to be a Leaf fan. This year was tough. You know, they played well during the regular season. But when you look back on it now, they played well in a division with all Canadian teams. And, you know, I don't think the crossover is going to be too successful for whatever Canadian team comes out of that division. The thing that I'm most disappointed in is how, obviously, the big guns played, Marner and Matthews. And, you know, I, I think that we hear it all the time. Your, your, your big players have to play big games, right? Not only that, if your big players aren't scoring goals, then they got to be doing something in other departments, whether they're a monster in the face-off zone, killing penalties, hitting everything in sight, which you've seen. You've seen that with, with upper echelon players who haven't been playing well. Barzell's a, a perfect example. And then he finally gets a, a big goal, and who knows where he's going to take it now. The thing that, I, that disappoints me and would question whether or not I would want to, to ride the future on Marner's and, Marner and Matthews is, like, they were ghosts in this first round. I mean, they were non-existent. And I'm talking about the little things. When I watch Austin Matthews take face-offs, and he doesn't want to take a face-off to win the face-off, like really bear down and get in there and get dirty – that concerns me, right? I, I don't know where you go with it. I also think, you know, trading these guys with that type of contract is a very difficult thing to do. So I think what it is also, and, you know, and I, and I, I was thinking about this, like, did, did Scotty Bowman ever bench Brendan Shanahan in the playoffs? And I answered the question to myself because, no, he never had to because Shanny always showed up in the playoffs, right? There were times during the regular season where Scotty and, and Shanny butted heads. But when the playoffs came around, Shanny always showed up. And, you know, I think that the onus right now, in my mind, after a few days to think about it, is on the head coach. I mean, he didn't get his players to play hard enough. And I think that's where you really need to address the future, in my opinion. And look, you bring up a good point. The, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs had Lou Lamorello and Mark Hunter, very experienced executives, and Brendan Shanahan had his guy in Kyle Dubas, and he groomed them, and Kyle Dubas has done a, a fantastic job on many levels, and Kyle Dubas got his guy, Sheldon Keefe, who'd never coached in the National Hockey League. Do you think that there's a misconception in hockey that if you were successful in minor leagues or in other leagues, that you're going to be a good National Hockey League coach? And do you think that it's completely possible that just because you won somewhere else means nothing once you get to the show? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like apples and oranges, right? You, you're, um, one, it's a completely different game. Two, you're not dealing with, with – superstar caliber players like you're dealing with 
uh, once you get to the NHL. And obviously the third part of that is being in a market like Toronto. Um, but, you know, the other thing too is that, that I kept thinking about or I have been thinking about the last week. You see the games now. Your bottom six forwards are so important. I mean, your bottom six forwards are the, are the heart and nucle- nucleus of the team, especially in the playoffs. And that's exactly what you saw. You saw that, you know, Toronto had great superstars during the regular season. And then when the playoffs came around, their bottom six really couldn't get the job done. They stole a game or two, but it's not like these great teams. And I'm a huge Tampa Bay fan. And Tampa Bay, you know, I'm not happy with Tampa Bay right now, but they've been winning because their bottom six, they steal games. And that's what history has shown us. Like with the Red Wings and the great grind line, you always knew that the grind line was going to steal a game in every series. And I don't like the Leafs bottom six at all. I I don't, they don't have game breakers. They don't have guys that, that, I would want my bottom six, right? And the other thing, too, that bothers me is you can see in the playoffs that if you play a certain way, you'll win, right? It's not a perimeter tic-tac-toe game right now. You have to get the puck in. You have to get a cycle, and you have to wear down the other team's defensemen. And Montreal would have been a perfect example of that because you've got Weber and Petrie. And all that you should have been focused on is every single time we get the puck, we're going to get the red line and we're going to wear these guys down. We're going to cycle and grind and focus on puck possession. And by game three or game four, Weber and Petrie are going to be exhausted and they're going to be banged up. And I don't understand how that wasn't the game plan. I didn't see that at all. Right? That comes from the coach. That's the DNA of the team. That's what's frustrating to me because I can see it. I can see it. And Tampa, again, is a great example of that. You have to get the puck in deep. You have to cycle. You have to wear the other team's defense down. And, you know, you might not win the first game with it, but I'll tell you what, by game five, six, seven, you're going to be in a better position. Sean, we're up against it for time. I appreciate your time. And as always, Really great having you on the program. If I'm TNT, uh, I'm calling you and I'm calling Jeremy Roenick and putting you with Wayne Gretzky because I think that would be really entertaining television. I, and I hope you're open to that idea if they indeed call you. Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I think that that would probably be the, be the only job that I would be open to in hockey or, or, or that would work. Uh, I also, Joey, I want, I want to... I, I, what's going on there with you guys in Ontario right now is very frustrating. You know, I'm in California and we don't have masks on. Like we've got our freedom back. I do not understand what's going on there. And I don't understand what science they're reading. And I don't understand why the people are accepting this. Like we need to have, we need to get back to normal for the sake of, of our businesses and our health and our families. And I, I don't know. I'm just I'm pulling for you guys there. My parents are there, and it, it, it's not fun. It's not fun. 
Well, listen, we appreciate your sentiment, and I agree with you, and hopefully we're going to get some some light at the end of the tunnel here in the next couple of weeks and open up some things, and we'll get you on the program again soon because you're fantastic, and we appreciate your time, pal. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joey. I'll see you later. All right, that is Sean Avery. Follow him on Instagram. Follow him on Twitter. Always entertaining. We're going to take the break and come back with some of your texts on if you were running the Toronto Maple Leafs, what would you do when we return? It's the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. a couple of your texts here on the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. David in Waterdown says, I'm kind of okay if we roll it one more time, but on the same note, I get it if we make a major change, talking about what would you do if you were running the Toronto Maple Leafs to get ready for next season? Do you roll the same lineup? And also asked what you thought of the Shifley hit. Dave from the bridge says, if Evans gets up after the hit, is Shifley even suspended? And he also says, hey, Joey, I know it's not the text question, but shout out to all the kids who got drafted to the OHL last night. My nephew went seventh from the bridge. That's Woodbridge, a fine place in southern Ontario. We'll get to some more of your texts in the next hour. But up next, a gentleman who will perform on the Juno Awards. He's from Kingston. Lead singer, passed away and inspired one of the greatest outpourings of love this nation has ever seen. We'll talk to him next when we return on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. It is my pleasure now to welcome a longtime friend and a guy that I look forward to seeing in person, but we're going to get to see him on television tomorrow night as part of the Juno Awards, the tragically hip have a new record called Saskadelphia. Joined now by guitarist Robbie Baker. Robbie, thanks a lot for doing this. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Joey? I'm good. It's been a, it's been a while since we've we've spoken, and you know, as I said last week when I had Paul on the show, I have this long history with you guys, going way back to the beginning, to the to the EP and the night you guys got signed at the Toronto Music Awards in, in 1988. So I feel this kind of, this bond with with the hip, because as you've grown up, I've grown up, and we were talking about your, I want to start off with the, the Canadian identity and how the Tragically Hip are not only treasured, but Canadians almost get, as close to, to as close to ornery as Canadians would get when it comes to the hip <laughs> and, and the Canadianness of the of the tragically hip. And I and I asked Paul's perspective on this and I want to get yours. When did this happen? Was it a gradual thing or did you notice this at some point? When did you realize not the Canadianness, because you're Canadian, you always you knew you're you knew you're Canadian, but when did you realize this connection with Canadian audiences on a on a level that I just described? Uh, yeah, it was something we started seeing when we were, uh, I guess we first really became aware of it touring in the States and you'd look out and the most drunken person in the audience would be painted red and white wearing a flag cape. (laughs) It was like, what is happening? Canadians don't even wave the flag at home. And now they're, you know, traveling the world and waving the flag. Uh, it seemed a little odd and, uh, I don't think we really ever knew what to make of it. But from the very beginning, 
we were we came up at a time where all these bands did uh you know they sang about hollywood high and american experience and we just thought there's so many great canadian stories why isn't anyone telling these why wouldn't we use local place names instead of referencing new york or hollywood or so we just took that approach you know yeah. it seemed uh, it seemed more real to us and i guess maybe no one else was doing it or there weren't a lot of people doing it so no, I mean, I guess, you know, you would, you, and, and it's funny because the name of the record is, is Saskadelphia, but you, the guess who talking about running back to Saskatoon, right? Like yeah, that's, there you go. That's a, that's a great example of what you're talking about, but, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm having a brain cramp, but I can't really think of a ton of those examples where, where a band kind of wears their Canadian heart on their sleeve, like the Tragically Hip did, and it's funny because I've seen you in the U.S. many times, specifically one night that Paul and I talked about was when you guys were showcasing for all the American radio people at the Trocadero in Philadelphia, <laughs> oddly enough, right? So, yeah. so I remember that night and I remember trying to explain, because I, I was your cheering section with the trying to explain to the Americans why you were so big in Canada and why they should pay attention. And having said that, you know, you guys have sold a couple of million records in America. You tour very well there. You tour very well around the world. You're a draw all over the world. But why do you think that you became so, I guess, cherished by Canadians? Obviously, the last tour with, with Gord really cemented it because of the outpouring of emotion. And I think that was the first time in the history of music where somebody in a band declared they weren't going to be around in the most serious of ways after a tour. So there, I think it was very unprecedented to use a very overused word. But when, when was that bond in Canada really created on the level that we saw at, at the end of, of the, you know, the original incarnation of the hip? Uh, it's, it's almost impossible for me to say it's I think it just uh, it was a slowly growing bond and as I said I think we just tried to be true to our roots of who we were and tell Canadian stories and make Canadian references you know I I loved uh, Gordon Sinclair and I were huge fans of Midnight Oil and they reference all these Canadian or uh, Australian place names that seemed so exotic to us <laughs> we loved it and it made us interested in their country and learn about their history and whatever we thought well why wouldn't we do that that seems like a totally natural thing to do and we were coming on the heels of all these bands you know what if it was Joni Mitchell or Neil Young or whoever it was uh, you had to move to the States you had to play that game and uh, it wasn't a game we wanted to play, you know, of course we wanted to do well in the States, we wanted to do well in Europe, but I wasn't really prepared to leave my hometown, you know, I like mm -hmm. it here. Uh, and I think there's something about staying true to your roots and staying true to who you are uh, that kind of rings, you know, has a, a deep resonance for a lot of Canadians. You know what? It's funny. You just mentioned Joni and you mentioned Neil Young and then two Canadian references popped up in my head was her singing Little Money Riding on the Maple Leafs and then Neil singing There is a Town in North Ontario. So beautiful. You know what? It's 
it made me realize that, yeah, maybe there's more than I thought. But, you know, getting, it, getting past that connection with your fans, let's talk about the connection within, within the band with each other and how that was formed in Kingston so many years ago. And when you guys were coming up, when did you realize you could do this for a living? When did you realize this was going to be how you spent your life? Honestly, it was very slow uh, progress. Uh, I played in bands with in high school with Gord Sinclair, and the competing band in high school a couple years behind us had Gord Downey in it. And then after high school, I got into a band with him, and that kind of became a going concern. We were sort of the hot band in eastern Ontario, and we were working four or five nights a week and trying to go to university. And it just became too much, and we said, you know, we... Uh, is this really what we want to do for the rest of our lives? We're going to university. Why don't we just form a band with our buddies and do it for fun and free beer? And uh, and that was the hip. And so we, you know, we assembled friends, Gord Sinclair and Johnny, and uh, and just started doing it. And at a certain point, we were making, you know, probably three hundred and fifty dollars a week each which if we pooled our money was enough to keep body and soul together, you know, keep us in an apartment and uh, keep food and gas in the van. So uh, we just thought, well, let's, let's keep riding this and see how far we can take it. But it was never, I mean, at, at, on some level, as a little kid, I knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. It just didn't seem like it was a real possibility that there was no pathway there's no school you go to unless it's art school <laughs> you know yeah. there's no uh, there's no sort of a laid out path of how you you get into a rock and successful rock and roll band it seems like getting struck by lightning you can stand out in the middle of the field and hope for lightning to strike you but it's not really a plan no so man. so it just kind of a in a way it just sort of evolved we were you know we worked hard, we enjoyed ourselves, and it was a friendship which made it easy to keep at it. And uh, it just, it was a slow build. And I think we came up at a, we were very lucky to come up at a time when uh, our A&R guy out of LA, uh, Bruce Dickinson, who's a great guy, he said, you're not the kind of band who's gonna have a big pop hit and take off like a rocket. You're the kind of band that's gonna have a slow build, play thousands of shows and build a fan base and sometime around your fourth or fifth album you'll have achieved sort of a critical mass and you'll become well known and this was his plan record company guys don't think like that anymore that's just that's extinct thinking well they, no. Uh, you, no you've got 20 you've got 20 minutes to have a hit yeah and they pull yeah. the plug on you no that's a listen it's a great point we live in a we live in, I was going to say Instagram, but that's passe now. We live in a TikTok world where artists are getting signed because of how many views they have on TikTok. And you had a guy, and I was there, you know, I said it last week with, with night, Paul yeah. Robbie. I was there that night at the Toronto Music Awards at Massey Hall when you guys got signed. And in, there's, that, there's a kind of a, a music industry saying that if Bruce, if Bruce Springsteen would have got signed now, he would have been dropped after his first record. So. Yeah. You guys are very much in that vein, and you built up your fan base through touring and being on the road. Now, look, your success came pretty quickly in Canada, 
you know, your first record was very successful. The second one, which which I'm proud to say, I, I have a I have a gold record for downstairs in my basement. And and you know, going back to the days when when we first met, but you guys really honed your your craft and built up your audience on the road. And I think that people don't understand. You know, when when an a album like Road Apples comes out and you name it Road Apples, you know, the story is that, that you guys wanted to call it Saskadelphia and, and Paul told the story last week. But was were the tragically hip Road Apples, and I mean that in the sense of, as you described early on, you, you played a lot of gigs. Like, talk about the road and, and what that part of your existence meant to the tragically hip. Uh, it was everything. <laughs> really, uh, a band is really only a band when they're doing the things that a band does. I mean, we're five very different guys. We have lots of different interests. It's a five-way Venn diagram, and there's lots of common interest. But the one thing that we all loved was getting up and rocking together. And uh, if you have to sit in a van for 12 hours to get to the next gig to do it, that's fine. You better be with friends and people that you enjoy because it's a, it is a hard road, but it makes it a lot easier if you're with people that you love and care about and you know that there's a payoff at the other end when you get to get up on stage and play. So that was, yeah, from day one, that was, that was it for us. We never really considered that we'd make a record or any of that. It was just getting out and rocking in front of a crowd and uh, having a lot of fun doing it. Now, when you were making records, you know, some artists will, I've talked to so many artists over the years, and if you're just joining us, Robbie Baker from the Tragically Hip is here on the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. They have a new record called Saskadelphia, which are five unreleased studio tracks from the Road Apple Sessions and then a live track from what was the Molson Center, what is now the Bell Center. And we'll get into your your love of hockey and and the Toronto Maple Leafs in, in a moment, but... The the Road Apple sessions and Saskadelphia are intrinsically tied together because that's what you wanted the record to be called. You wanted it to be a you wanted it to be a, a double record. And of course, record companies have other ideas about different things. But Robbie, tell us about that time making Road Apples and then finding these songs and how your memories were collectively jogged that you found these unreleased songs. Yeah, well, it was a pretty great time for the band. We, you know, we'd had the Baby Blue record, which did much better than anyone expected. It wasn't exactly a smash hit or anything, but it did allow us, and it was also the time of much music where if you were a Canadian band and you had a video, uh, they were starved for material, so they'd probably play your video. And uh, people sat home on Friday nights and watched videos. Do you remember that, Joey? Crazy, Crazy, man. They used to have, like, a big audience. I think their biggest audience now for their biggest event is probably, like, a tenth of what they would have on a typical Friday night then. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that allowed us to tour back and forth across the country. And then Up to Here came out, and that really pushed the ball pretty far down. It was a a long gainer pass, and we felt like we were in scoring distance, Uh, but we were also keenly aware of the sophomore curse that affects so many bands. You know, you spend years writing your first record, and then you have 
weeks, months to write the second record. So we really, you know, we wrote on the road. We, when we weren't on the road, we were writing, and uh, and we were really tight at the time. So uh, we went into New Orleans with a ton of material. We were just we were ready for anything, I think, and uh, we recorded it all. Uh, you know, we had a pretty good idea of what the album was going to be. And uh, I think we thought the lead-off single would probably be uh, It Ain't Necessary and Crack My Spine Like a Whip would maybe be the second single. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we got down there and started writing other songs. <laughs> and Little Bones was the first one that came up. and uh, Things just started moving around. And the album changed Don Smith very wisely, uh, who was at the helm, our producer. Uh, he would just have us play and play and play and run tape all the time. So we ended up with about 60-plus rolls of two-inch tape and called the record from that. And then all that tape went to storage in L.A. And uh, about two and a half, coming up on three years ago, I read in, I was sitting in Rome, <laughs> getting ready to go to my painting class, and uh, I read in the New York Times that uh, about the fire that had happened at this storage facility in L.A. a couple, well, years before, and Universal had hidden the fact that this fire had happened and all these master tapes had been lost. Uh, and I immediately got... I texted Johnny and I said, are you up? Can you talk? And we chatted for a bit. And uh, I said, did we have tapes in that vault? And he said, I'm pretty sure we did. I think that's where Don Smith kept up to here in Road Apples. And I just set off this search. It was like the spark that set this fire under us. Because after Gord's death, we all kind of went our separate ways. We're in touch, we talk, but everyone's doing their own thing. Uh, and the communication was sparse, I guess I would say. And we were rarely ever in the same room. So it was a spark that kind of uh, started this search. Where are the tapes? Did we lose this stuff? Does it still exist? If so, who owns it? How do we get our hands on it? Because we knew that there was all this material there. We had talked, you know, many times the idea had come up of, you know, we need to... Uh, amass all these unrecorded or unreleased songs and uh, so it just started this the search and Johnny being in Toronto was the one that really led the charge and uh, you know Johnny he's tenacious yeah. <laughs> he's, yes, he's he nothing if not tenacious yes and he uh, and he went hard at it and he went hard at the record company and uh, we we're able to track down, I think, 35 of 60-plus rolls of two-inch tape. And uh, from that, we were able to call these five songs. Uh, but we know there's a lot more. It's just getting our hands on it. But, yeah, it, but it, was this, it was this spark that brought us back together in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, and we thought, well, you know, we do have... There's stuff we can do. We may not be a touring band anymore, but there is stuff that is relevant to us and that we think fans would enjoy. So. Well, and look, fans are going to enjoy your performance with Feist on the Juno Awards on Sunday night. And 
you know, we have to we have to mention that this will be the first time that you guys are performing after the passing of of Gord. So the, yeah. the, the, the you know, the question is, how did that happen? Uh, I'm not going to ask you how you're going to feel because I don't imagine you, you know how you're going to feel until you're actually doing it. But I imagine you've had some thoughts running through your mind about the whole scenario. Would you be so kind as to, to share them with us? Yeah, uh, there's obviously no replacing Gord, and uh, we would never even consider that. So I think the there wasn't a lot of appetite amongst uh, the four of us to get up and play with someone else. And uh, people won't let it go, <laughs> you know, where there are constant requests and people, you know, offering outrageous money and all kinds of scenarios in which we get up and do this. And how about you do it with 12 different singers and, you know, all this stuff. And it's just, it doesn't really appeal to us. The hip without Gord is not the hip. So, uh, but having said that, we are getting the, receiving the humanitarian award, uh, which is an incredible honor. And they kept at us about, you know, would you perform a song? Would you perform a song? What if we brought in so-and-so or, you know, they'd throw these names out and none of it really appealed. And we kept pushing it to the back burner and a couple months went by of them throwing names out. And then finally the, the name Leslie Feist was mentioned and we all kind of paused. And I think that uh, we simultaneously felt like Gord, Gord smiling, Gord would love that. And you know, we all know and love and respect Leslie and uh, it seemed like a natural if we were ever going to do it she's a good choice it's not it's not trying to replace gord it's just playing a hip song welcome back to the program for this saturday june the 5th my name is joey vendetta still to come here on the sportsnet radio network and on television on sportsnet one Houston at Toronto at the 3 o'clock Eastern time. We'll be joined by Ben Verlander, Fox Sports Major League Baseball analyst. He hosts Flippin' Bats with Ben Verlander just before the game starts. And as well, at around 2 o'clock Eastern, that's 11 o'clock Pacific, Chris Contos, former National Hockey League player, with the Rangers, the Penguins, the Kings, and had a great run with the Tampa Bay Lightning in the playoffs will join us. Right now, though, it is my pleasure to welcome to the program a man who creates vivid prose and allows you to get inside the minds of some of this sport's premier athletes. Freelance writer for the New York Times, host of no Challenges Remaining, the podcast and senior writer for RacketMag.com, at Ben Rothenberg on Twitter. Ben Rothenberg joins us right now to talk some tennis and the French Open. Ben, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me, Joey. I appreciate the, the vivid prose comment. I don't get that much. Well, I took journalism at 
at the time was a polytechnical that became a university here in the Toronto area called Ryerson. I didn't graduate because I got a job on radio for $4.30 an hour. As you can tell, it was a long time ago. So mm-hmm. I admire people that are actually journalists because when I was a kid, there was an old show on television. You may remember it called The Odd Couple with Felix and Oscar. Do you remember that show? Sure. The Odd Couple? It was before my time, but I definitely know it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not going to say he was my hero, but when I was a kid, I wanted to grow up to be a sports journalist, which I'm the furthest thing from at this point. And Oscar Madison, Jack Klugman on that show, was kind of the guy that I wanted to model myself after, smoking cigars and eating sandwiches in bed. And I know that you probably aspire to greater heights. So I was saying that people like you who actually put the pros together and write articles and do the research I admire and a sport like tennis, especially in the last couple of years, it's, it probably has been a challenge with the accessibility for you to a degree. So I look at this current scenario right now with Naomi Osaka, who was the center of attention earlier this week at Roland Garros when she withdrew from the tournament on Monday, not wanting to take attention away from the sport. And she was someone who said that there was an issue with the media and she ended up withdrawing because she's dealing with some mental health issues, according to what she told us. Tell us about the scenario, how it unfolded and your thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, I think it caught a lot of people in tennis off guard because Naomi had always been someone who had been really affable with media and very open and and funny and and unique and, and quirky and different and, all sorts of positive things and, and really sort of breath of fresh air in the press room for a long time. And then she came out with this sort of statement on, I think Thursday of last week saying, you know, week prior to this one saying that she was going to not do press conferences at the French open because she felt like they were bad for people who are getting sort of kicked when they're down, especially after losses and she wasn't going to do it and she would take the fine. And it was this really sort of, it seems again from people who were not her, out of nowhere stance because she had never previously objected to any sort of, you know, the media landscape at all, or the media obligations as part of the sport. And so it launched this whole sort of scrutiny of, you know, press conferences and media and the quality of tennis media and stuff and tennis media. And, you know, the idea that post-match pressure mandatory became this huge talking point, not just in tennis, but around sort of the wider world of, of sports and of, of media globally. And it really, really blew up. And then eventually she did pull out, after getting a fine for not doing her first post-match press conference after she won her first round match and she pulled out before the second round. So it was, it was just this weird sort of scrutiny thing. And, and talking to other players, it really does seem like not a lot of them are co-signing what Osaka was saying, honestly. You know, this seems to be more an issue that stems from her own sort of, I guess, current, you know, mental health situation, which doesn't make it any less serious for her. But it, it doesn't seem like it's a, a widespread systemic uh, sort of complaint that a lot of players have really gotten on board with per se, at least the way she framed it initially. So what do you think is precipitating this more vocal expression amongst tennis players and athletes in general of the ramifications of being the center of attention, the spotlight? Look, we know that in team sports, you're not the center of attention. You're not the focal point, unless you're a star player, but you're still protected to a degree. Tennis, golf, 
than many other sports where you're the individual focal point is a is is something that presents a different set of challenges and yeah. why do you think this is happening now and i know that if i'm not mistaken venus williams defended her uh, or maybe it was Serena. Somebody def- def- one of the Williams sisters defended her this week when when they were questioned by I think it was Serena actually when they were questioned by a reporter on what do you think of Naomi Osaka and she basically said Have you ever played high level tennis? Uh, and she said I- yeah. I'm one of the greatest. Whatever. Well, I don't know what the what was the answer well, she yeah, gave. I, I can tell you. Yeah. So that that was Venus actually. And Venus basically was sort of asked after she lost her first round match you know, sort of about Naomi's comments and then asked what her own strategies for coping with, you know, press after losses was. And she said, basically, I look at, you know, whoever's asking me the question and know that I'm so much better than they'll ever be and they can't hold a candle to me at tennis. So why should I care what they think? Basically, it's her coping mechanism, which is, you know, fair for almost any elite athlete in any sport. And that's not really, you know, I don't think any sports writer thinks otherwise. Uh, but it was interesting to hear from Venus that that was her, her sort of her way of dealing with it, you know, just sort of having, of, of of keeping her her head up or keeping confidence, and just sort of with some disdain for the athletic ability of the of the press, which is which is fine if that's what works for her. I, yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting moment for it to happen. I think there's just a bunch of different factors. I think players, um, especially someone like on a superstar level like Naomi, who's the highest paid female athlete in the world, you know, I think they are getting more and more control over their sort of messaging and their their profile and their their media presence you know Naomi has a, a documentary about herself that's coming out that's being sort of self-produced that's coming out this summer I believe and I think that more and more of these sort of big celebrities whether it's you know top athletes like Naomi or Serena or, or LeBron or, or someone you know even outside sports like a Beyonce or something you know they're increasingly not doing interviews and more and more just putting out their own sort of content and really curating their own message. And I think maybe a little bit, this is a shift towards athletes wanting greater control of, uh, of their depiction and, and Naomi's decision would fit in, along those lines. Okay. You're a journalist. What do you think of that? We've had journalists in hockey and other sports complain about lack of access during COVID. It's setting a precedent yeah. that might be a little bit dangerous from your standpoint, you're not going to have the access that, and I'm not saying you specifically, but journalists yeah. not having the access, being fed the the commentary, pre-created content, uh, pre-create. You know, you're basically handed a sheet here. Here's what I'm going to say, as opposed to being able to ask questions. Now, you know, it's happened here in Canada with regards to different sports where the general managers, the presidents. The coaches are available, and the media can ask them questions. But there's definitely been a shift in the accessibility. Yeah. No, sure. I mean, I've been on all sides of, you know, in terms of accommodating, you know, subjects or, or interviewees or whatever. I mean, I've been at, you know, John Tortorella press conferences in hockey, which is, you know, sort of the extreme end of, of not being helpful or not being open. But I, I and I, I do think that there is, there can be value, especially in, you know, certain extreme cases. Like we've had a couple players you know, in tennis this year on the men's side who were accused by their former partners of domestic violence type situations, right? And so those are situations where you need to be able to present the athlete with those sort of tough topics they're never going to broach on their own in some sort of, you know, social media post or whatever it may be. So those are like the more extreme uh, sort of journalism examples of why it's important to have the open access. But then also, yeah, I think what you're saying before is right. Like I do see certainly in tennis, you know, access to 
for journalists getting rolled back under the cover of COVID restrictions. And I just worry, I think a lot of people in the field worry that those things won't come back once, you know, once the sort of the fog lifts and we're out from under this pandemic, that you won't get back, you know, all the locker room access or all the player lounge access in tennis that you used to get. I think, I think people fear this being uh, a bit of a, a cover for them to, uh, to roll back the access in a lot of different ways, which would be frustrating for sure. Our guest is Ben Rothenberg, freelance writer for the New York Times, covers tennis, amongst other things, hosts at NCR underscore tennis podcast, senior editor for Racket Magazine. And look, you bring up a good point in terms of the access and the access being being basically choked and cut off. And we mm-hmm. are in a world now where the media shapes the narrative on so many levels. We saw it in the last presidential election. I, I think that might have been the greatest example of it of, of all time, where you have one side and another side, and they both have their their media outlets that basically adhere to the narrative that they're spewing. And yeah. when you look at it in sports, it it's a it's tough to be the the butt of jokes being ridiculed having your your family accosted by fans quote unquote and you documented Sloane Stevens issues in recent months with mental health mm-hmm. and her family's issues with the coronavirus are we going to see more players be candid with what they're going through and share their mental health challenges you know, I hope so, and I hope that that's something maybe that Naomi actually was able to make a positive impact on by being open about that part of it in her second statement where she pulled out of the tournament, citing, you know, recurring issues with depression. I think that can kind of empower a lot of players to come forward and say that they are similarly struggling too. And, you know, Naomi's won the last two Grand Slams she's played. It doesn't make her any any weaker of a competitor or an athlete or a person to admit that she's having these these problems. And I think maybe that gives this cover for more players to, to come forward with that as well. But it's, it's been a tough time for everybody. I think no, almost no one is sort of, you know, thriving or living their best life, you know, during this pandemic or even as we come out of it. I think a lot of people have been going through a lot of hard times and a lot of empathy and sympathy a- across the board is probably, probably do. Before I let you go, I have to ask, where do you think Canadian tennis is right now in terms mm-hmm. of, it's historical place in a sport that now in Canada, where we've seen the rise of Bianca Andreescu, Denis Shapovalov, Felix Auger, Ali Asim. Where do you think Canadian tennis is right now on the world stage? And where do you think it's going to go? It's an interesting moment for Canadian tennis. I think Canadian tennis really was surging, you know, right before the pandemic. You had obviously Bianca Andreescu, most of all winning, the U S open after having won the Rogers cup and the Indian Wells tournament right before that. So that was a huge, huge year for her. And then she kind of got sidelined by injuries for a year and, and struggled to get back to that peak form. And then you had both Denis Shapovalov and Felix Ojeala you know, coming into the top 20 and really surging. And I think in the, in this last year, they've kind of plateaued a bit. They haven't really been making as many steps forward. And so it's an interesting question to see what these three young players do with this sort of stall and how they how they respond and they're all coming up into what i think for most of them is a very friendly time of the season maybe not the grass wimbledon but the certainly the north american hardcore swing in canada and the u.s i think it's a big moment for all three of them to sort of 
you know, reinsert themselves into the conversation because I think they're not currently sort of, I think they're losing momentum a little bit in the big picture of, of those three guys or those three players. And then there's still other players, you know, Milos Raonic is still a top 20 player when he's healthy and he shouldn't be forgotten. He still absolutely can be a factor of big tournaments when healthy. He's just had so much trouble staying that way. And Jeannie Bouchard, to mention her as well, she's sort of been trending up, but also having some injury issues. Uh, Layla Fernandez is also sort of, you know, slowly creeping up towards being a top 50 player solidly, but still, you know, very early in her career. It's too tough to tell, but there, I think it's a, it's a model of success for a lot of other countries, seeing what Canada has been able to do in terms of getting this many players of this generation to the sort of top tier of tennis. But I think there will need to be an extra push of some kind, you know, to get especially Shapovalov and, and Felix to, to that next level. Ben, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it, and we wish you nothing but health and success in the future. Thank you, Joey. You too. And uh, good luck with your sandwiches and bed dreams as well. That feels achievable. Oh, yeah, I, I, I got to tell you, that is just nirvana right there, my friend. Thanks for being on the show. That is Ben Rothenberg, freelance writer for the New York Times, host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast and senior writer for RacketMag.com. As we talk French Open, we're going to take the break, and it's going to be your text or your call that provides us with the fodder for this next segment. The phone lines are open at 416-870-0590, 1-888-666-0590, or you can text us at 590-590. You are in charge of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Tell me what you do. Do you stand pat? Do you make a trade? Do you make an organizational move? Well, you have an opinion, don't you? I'm sure you do. Let's hear it. Phone lines. 416-870-0590. Or text us at 590-590. We'll get into it when we come back. This is the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. <laughs> Welcome back. Saturday, June the 5th. Time to take your texts and calls on what you would do if you were in charge of the Toronto Maple Leaf Hockey Club in light of the first round exit again. Let's go to Brian in Whitby. Brian, you are on the Sportsnet Radio Network nationally. What's up, my man? Good afternoon. How are you? Excellent. Good to have you on the program. Great. So here's my point, and I'm going to throw this out to you. So, I recall a time way back when the Leafs had a Felix Potman, and everyone was happy with the Felix Potman, but what did the Leafs do that year? They went out and got a Curtis Joseph. So what I'm thinking here is this is not a goalie uh, problem. I think Campbell and Anderson did a great job, but it's sometimes not the amount of saves and the save percentage, but it's sometimes when you make the save, and I think they just need the elite goalie. Now, how are they going to get this elite goalie? Great question, but just from previous teams, you need a goalie to just win you a game, to stand on their head. I remember, I think, one playoff series. I think Kujo shut the series out three of the four games. So the team is fine. The offense is great. The defense looks okay. You could add another D guy if you want. But I think you guys stay status quo. Cool. But if I had to do something, I would somehow try and get an elite NHL goalie. Your guess is as good as mine. How you do that, that's another issue. But that's just my thoughts. I don't know if, if you agree or disagree with that, but just throwing it out there. 
I think, Brian, I appreciate the call. You make a good point. And the point is the Leafs had a goalie who didn't, and I'm talking about Freddie Anderson, who was a good goalie. He played a lot of games. He made great saves during the regular season. And in the playoffs, he'd let in the odd goal that would let the team down. Jack Campbell goes on a run. Freddie gets hurt, goes on a run. He's suddenly their number one goalie. Jack Campbell was never a number one goalie, but they didn't lose the series because of Jack Campbell. They lost the series because of Carey Price. Now, you can say what you want about the Gallagher goal or another odd goal here or there, but Jack Campbell wasn't the problem. Carey Price played like the legendary Carey Price and not the guy of the last three years in the regular season. Let's get to some of these texts before we take the break here and come back with our next guest. Let's see here. Dom in Maple. Hey, Joey, trade two of the top four and go get a legit number one goalie, ND. How do you fix the Maple Leafs if you are in charge? From the 905, we sit in the corner and cry ourselves to sleep. Okay. I mean, we've all done that before. Robert from BC. Shifley had no prior history. Evans should have had his head up and protected himself. Two games should have been the max. It used to be a clean hit in the game for a reason. It's a tough game. He's talking about the Mark Shifley hit, and I had also asked your opinion on that and whether you thought it was a clean hit. And let's see. Doc in Mimico, regular listener of the program. Missing John Tavares and Felino and Muzzin didn't help. If you take three top players off your team, it would be hard to come back. Not going to argue that point. It's just the end result that everyone is having an issue with, right? It's that simple. Let's see. Steve Rajnik texts in. Another local hockey legend along with Doc and Mimico. Leafs should trade Riley when they can get a great return. Have Sandine, Dermott, Muzzin on the left side. And, of course, pay someone $7 million and a first rounder to take Tavares. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Tavares after that hit. Does he come back and is he the same player? I think he is. Let's see. Hey, Joey, when Avery says he doesn't know what's going on here, read the pandemic, remind him that in Canada, we never had to put corpses in refrigerated trucks because the morgues were full. Mike in Victoria. Scott from Alora. What do you do with the Leafs? Hire a sports psychologist, maybe Wickenheiser. It's something between the ears. From the 226, classic Joey Vendetta leaps at the chance to sling baseless criticism towards Trudeau on live radio about buying vaccines on layaway. But when asked today about what's going on in Ontario, can't bring himself to criticize Doug Ford. We get it. You vote conservative. No, actually, I didn't vote. I think they all stink. How's that sound? Smart guy or girl. Hey, Joey, great show. Leafs need to get rid of the coach. I've watched that guy behind the bench at pro level. He coaches the same way coaches coach minor hockey. No strategy, no foresight, and most of all, no adjustments. Failed power play for months before the playoffs. Still didn't make adjustments. Look, it's it's easy to criticize right now, but it's not like Ducharme had a ton of experience either. So you you can sit here and say, why didn't... Why didn't some of these lines get shifted around if they couldn't free up Matthews and if Marner was struggling? Because you want to be consistent because if you lose, you can say, look, we we had success with these lines all year, so I'm not going to change them in the playoffs. But when you saw things weren't happening in game six, put Galchenyuk back on the first line. Yeah, he had a giveaway. I get it. But Hyman wasn't rolling. Move him down, and maybe he helps another line. 
Hindsight is 2020, isn't it? Our next guest had a playoff run with the LA Kings in 88-89 with Wayne Gretzky. They were down 3-1 to of the Oilers, came back to win the series, played for the Lightning in their inaugural season, had 27 goals. First game versus the Blackhawks, first goal in history, and four goals that game. He'll join us next here on the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Still to come, Ben Verlander, then it's the Blue Jays. Ben Verlander will talk about Major League Baseball and the Toronto Blue Jays. To perform in Buffalo against the Houston Astros at 3 o'clock Eastern. And you can watch them on Sportsnet 1 or listen to them on your radio. Sportsnet 590 The Fan or listen to them online. Boston at the Islanders, game four. Boston leads two to one, seven fifteen. Carolina at Tampa Bay, game four, four o'clock Eastern. That's on Sportsnet Ontario, Sportsnet East and West. Same thing for that Boston and Islanders game. And then Vegas at Washington in the WNBA, one o'clock Eastern. That's already started on Sportsnet 360. So some of the highlights this week, Coach K is going to call it a career. Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski announced that next season will be his last. He's been coaching for 40 years. I'd say it's time to retire. The Sabres won the draft lottery. Is that going to help? Will they try to trade Jack Eichel to the Leafs for Mitch Marner? Would you make that deal? I would, just for a change of scenery. Marner's a good player. He's a really good player. He's a great player. He hasn't scored in 18 playoff games. I mean, that's we play to win the game. The Clippers and the Mavericks are going to a game seven. Kawhi had 45 points after I tweeted at Radio Vendetta that I wanted to see him lose so that he would leave the Clippers and join the Lakers and they would have an evil super team with LeBron and then they would win the title again next year. But of course, he had 45 points and they won. Vegas won last night 3-2 to two against the Avs, who looked like they were unbeatable. Marches so and Pacioretty score. Boy, was it nice to see a building full of cheering, screaming people. Full capacity. No masks. What the hell are you doing, Ontario? Pull it together. Okay. Time to be focused on the playoffs. Not that we haven't been, but with a guest that had success and came back from down three to one. Our next guest is a gentleman that is, he's pretty well known for scoring nine goals in 11 playoff games to help the LA Kings come back with Wayne Gretzky down from three to one against the Oilers. They came back and win that series was part of the Tampa Bay lightning in their inaugural season had 27 goals scored four goals in that first game. It's my pleasure to welcome a listener of this program, but a guy that played in the NHL and had success and is a local boy, Chris Contos. Chris, thanks so much for doing this. How are you today? Oh, Joy, my pleasure. I am a longtime listener and very happy to be on your show, especially during these playoffs, even though they've been turbulent But uh, for Leaf fans. But uh, once again, a pleasure. 
Okay, Chris, so my question on the text line is, you're in charge of the Toronto Maple Leafs. What do you do? Oh, man, that's a, that's a tough question, especially after the success they had in the North Division. You know, we've seen other teams, you know, have, have their bacon handed to them. My Lightning learned a couple of years ago against Columbus. They had to, you know, regroup and figure it out. You know, it, it's it's a tough thing with with all this talent and all the the money tied up in cap space. You, you have to. I mean, you can't really just blow it up and start over. You've you've uh, you've picked your guys, and hopefully they're going to learn. And next year, when we're talking about this, hopefully it's a totally different uh, scenario after the first round. So I just got a text from a guy who's a regular listener. His name's uh, Liberato. He lives in Scarborough, Ontario. And he says, Chris Contos was a clutch playoff goal scorer. If I recall, he was traded a few times on the trade deadline for a couple of teams and produced. The playoffs, they're a different animal. Mitch Marner has no goals in 18 playoff games. Nobody is more aware of that than Mitch Marner. What is it about the playoffs, Chris, that changes from the regular season? You know, Joy, there's a there's a reset after the uh, the regular season in the playoffs. It's a totally different bird. You know, as a guy that uh, I had success, and um, I, I do know that if you are a guy that uh, has had success, when you do the pre scouting to go in and play that series, I mean, we we have meeting upon meeting upon meeting to try to figure out what is it that my group of twenty guys has to do. We're going to ask guys to do things that uh, they're probably not comfortable with, but if everybody's pulling in the right direction, you know, you, you do your job and you say, we're, we're shutting down Matthews, we're shutting down Marner, and lo and behold, Montreal did it. They had great goaltending, and and they, they're the guys that came back from 3-1 like we did when I was with L.A. and, and accomplished their goal. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's a tough thing for Leaf fans to swallow, but... You know, maybe next year the Leafs have a have a system and a group of guys that everybody's asked to do something and and they do it uh, you know without without even thinking about it and they all buy into it and it's a, it's a different uh, it's a different scenario. It, it's really tough when you're up three one and you can't close. But I know that when you smell blood and you're down three one and you smell that little chink in the armor you start to believe and that momentum starts to grow. And like you were saying, Gallagher got that one goal in game seven and it was like, "Uh Oh, and everybody's uh, everybody's demeanor just changes that little bit. And the other team feels that, okay, we got it now. And you had Carey price as a stone wall in there and they, they believed in him big time. And that was the difference. Chris, you watch the games. Okay. And, there are some people that are critical of Sheldon Keefe for not changing up his lines, for sticking with the same guys that got him there. And there's one school of thought that would suggest that after the regular season that you had, you can't change your lines. You have to go with those that brung you, as the saying goes. And is there a time when you've experienced as a player sitting on the bench knowing that things weren't working and your coach continued to do the same thing and you're sitting on the bench and other guys, you could see the look in their eyes. Why doesn't this guy change it up? Yeah, I can see that. That's, that's frustrating. And and especially, you know, it's almost insanity. If if it's not working, you got to try something different, but it's just such a tough thing when, you know, maybe during the regular season you get, you know, 
10 power plays a game and your big guys get out there and they might not score for four or five of them, but then they get their apples and their their cookies and they feel good about themselves. The playoffs, man, it's so tough. Everything gets microscopically tightened up and it's just you saw how many guys blocked shots and did whatever whatever they had to do to uh to, you know to, to make it happen for their team it's just and the Leafs were trying that too and they had their they had their moments but you know at the end of the seven game series their their moments were just not as, as many as Montreal's but look if you have a team that was supposed to have been deep and the Toronto Maple Leafs talked about their depth and they lost less, John Tavares. Tavares, no, though. That's Tavares. Yeah, no. Unfortunately, he got taken out early. He's a big part of it. He's a huge part of it. Okay, absolutely, he's a huge part of it. And then Nick Foligno is hurt, and you've got a team that's now missing a key cog and a guy that was brought in to be a key cog. And then your, your two star players, the guys that you're paying $11 million a year to, don't score the goals that they need to score against a goalie that is also getting paid close to $11 million a year, but is actually playing like it. How critical should fans be of the inability of the Leaf star players to match the Canadians really at the end of the day, look, Shea Weber's a star, but he's not the Shea Weber in his prime. And Carey Price isn't even in his quote unquote prime, but he sure as hell played like it in that series. Well, that's why we tune in and watch. I mean, it shouldn't happen. And, you know, I think if you were played another seven-game series, it might not happen the same way again. But all the uh, – everything lined up for Montreal, and they were the ones who ended up coming out of that series. I mean, it's we can – hindsight 2020, we can analyze it and overanalyze it. And I, I, I saw Marner kind of lose his mojo a little bit and – Maybe in another series, he, he scores early and gets that uh, feeling of invincibility and just things start to pop and happen for him. But it just, Montreal just shut him down and they just never let him get going. I think Matthews really did try and he got some great looks and hit some posts. And, you know, if it goes two inches the other way, you know, we're not talking about this. We're talking about how we're up on Winnipeg right now. And unbelievable that Montreal is up to zip, you know, when you thought, you would have thought that, uh, you know, not even a chance. Like, Winnipeg was just going to walk right over them. But, you know, Montreal's figured out what to do in the playoffs. What do you say to those that think that the hit on on Evans was really not on Shifley but more on Evans because uh, he, quote-unquote, didn't keep his head up? I don't know. I You know, I have a son that plays, and if that happened to my son trying to, in the exact same scenario, I'm not a happy dad looking at it going, that's that's not a hockey play. I don't care what they say, say it's a hockey play. It was it was no different than if I'm coaching kids and, you know, we're, we're losing and one of my guys is just, you know, entitled, thinks that, I, I don't know, he just uh, has a little temper tantrum for just a split second and does his thing. But now he's paying the price. You know, that poor guy, you know, he may have long-lasting concussion issues. But, uh, you know, just to say it's a hockey play and he was trying to, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I didn't like it and I still don't like it. And I think the NHL did it right. Did you think it was dirty? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you think that he, do you think I saw his to... eyes after. He knew. He, he just kind of spaced out for a second and he did his thing and, 
you know, you know, now he's paying the price. Like there's, uh, you know, if you have a kid and that was your kid that was getting uh, laid out at that specific second or whatever, you, you wouldn't be very happy either. I mean, the NHL is trying to get rid of this kind of stuff. You just saw Kadri get eight games. He got four games. Was Kadri's hit that much worse? I'm no, asking you. he's just a repeat offender, right? So a as repeat a repeat offender, I know he's. They, re- they, but was it was it was it four games more? I it's guess all re- subjective, right? I guess the repeat offense makes it four games more, but it's still. I mean, we're, we're seeing this happen all the time, and the league's trying to clean that kind of stuff up. I mean, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, that kind of stuff happened all the time. Scott Stevens made a living out of it, but the games changed, so I don't know. So, Chris, and our guest is Chris Contos, and as I said, had big success in the National Hockey League in the playoffs with the L.A. Kings scoring nine goals in 11 games, also had four goals in the first ever Tampa Bay Lightning game, had a long career in the NHL, but also internationally. And tell me about that series when the L.A. Kings came back to beat the Edmonton Oilers down 3-1, to one because that's exactly what happened with the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs. You're down three to one. What are you thinking? How are you digging yourself out of what used to be an insurmountable goal? Yeah, there was a time statistically when they'd say you're done, like three to one. Then we saw LA come back from three zeros to win a couple cups a few years later. It's, it's just a it's a question of your guys. We had meetings. We just said, okay, this is the game plan. We're going to stick to it. Everybody's got to pull on the rope at the same time, the same way. And, you know, you just look for your little uh, opportunities. And, you know, sometimes once a goal, a, a lucky goal, uh, an ugly goal goes in, you could just see the, the guys on the bench, their shoulders kind of pop up, their heads, everybody gets into it. And it's just, uh, you, come on, boys, we're – we can do this. And, you know, sure enough, you make it 3-2. Well, no different than a game. They say 3-1 the worst lead in hockey because if you score that goal in the third period to make it 3-2, their, their sphincters kind of tighten up a little bit and, you know, they're going, oh, my God, they're coming. And that's the kind of uh, deep-down psychological feeling I think the Leafs had. And we, uh, you know, the Edmonton Oilers had Mark Messier. I know Gretzky just got traded from the Oilers to the Kings and the whole hockey world was, was watching to see what was going to happen. But, it's the same game. It's the same momentum. It's the same psychological warfare feeling that, you know, we can do this. And and that's just what happened with Montreal. And they're doing it again now in the next series. So you played in New York and you played in Pittsburgh and Tampa, but you played in New York and L.A. We had Sean Avery on the show who also played in both of those markets. What was it like playing for both those teams? Now, L.A. was... As you said, you know, Gretzky was there, so it became showtime hockey. You had to be at the Forum. But you played at Madison Square Garden as well. You played in two iconic buildings. Tell us what it was like and what the, the differences were. Uh, well, New York was awesome. I was a, I was an 18-year-old rookie going there as a first-rounder. And poor New York, they hadn't won in 40 years. And, you know, anytime I played on the road with the, the Rangers – it's almost like we had more fans when we went to Minnesota and, you know, uh, anywhere in the league. We, You know, Chicago, uh, Detroit, we had so many Ranger fans, fans that just loved the Rangers, but they were starving for a cup, which they eventually got. But the problem with going there as a young kid is just they want the finished product. They want to win. So 
they're not really a team to go to to to, to be developed as a first rounder. But it was still amazing going there. You know, downtown Manhattan. We all lived out in the uh, suburbs in in Rye, New York, where we practiced and just went in for home games. So it was it was a special place to play and experience. L.A. a little different, where they um, they never really had success. But uh, you know, once Gretzky did get there, man, did it change. You know, Stallone was in the you know front row. Uh, you know, Tom Hanks was coming in after we were signing autographs for the stars and we were just like on cloud nine this is incredible guys like you know la had all of a sudden it was always a lakers town but it all of a sudden became a king's town once gretzky got there and it was so cool to be a part of that when they first started let's talk a little bit more before we let you go about the the current playoffs tampa bay a team that you played for you scored four goals in that first game and you were second in scoring to to bradley that year the the lightning have really come on in the last five, six years to become a perennial contender. They won the cup last year, of course, in the bubble. They they look to take that stranglehold tonight against Carolina. The home team is yet to win a game in this series. What are your thoughts on the series so far? I just love the way Tampa's built. I mean, the organization from top to bottom has been first class, even with our alumni and I'm I'm a fan of Tampa. I watch them. I I pull for them. I root for them. Stamkos is a, a great uh, captain, and he's been leading them. I know he only got a uh, a short little um, appearance last year, but it was so fitting to see him contribute. And they've just uh, they've just built things the right way. They've got great goaltending, great defensemen, great forwards, and I I don't know. I just uh, I don't know how a northern team. Once they come out of our uh, our playoffs up here and, and switches over to the South, I don't know if you've been watching. <laughs> the South game just seems so intense and hard and fast. And the one thing that, you know, I'm just going to say this about the Leafs, and I think they really got shorted because I think if we would have had full capacity crowds for the playoffs this year, I know it's a different year, that, that, that lift might have given the Marners and the Matthews that extra lift and that, that jam to go out and do something special. And uh, you watch, you know, Vegas play in a full crowd and they come back and win last night. It's just, it's so, that's the game that I remember and I love to see. And it's just, it's just sad that we didn't get that this year. And on a, I'm not saying it's why the Leafs didn't get through, but I think they would have really done better if they would have had that pushing them from behind as well. So Chris, before we let you go, yeah, things are, Things are opening up in the U.S. We're in Ontario where it's draconian and it's like we're in the dark ages here. It seems oh. like we live on a different planet. And oh. it also seems like it seems like the hockey's in a different on a different planet. And by that, I mean, when you watch Colorado Vegas, I mean, it is completely a different game than that Winnipeg Montreal game. Do you think that whatever team that comes out of the Canadian division is just going to get obliterated by one of the U.S. teams? I honestly think so, but I hope for Canada's sake we we show better and the guys raise to the uh, you know rise to the occasion when they get there. It's just I, I don't know the U.S. Uh, series. Just if you were to you know rank them from one out of ten, they just seem like they're a couple points ahead of us all the time in every aspect. Chris Andrew Manjapane, one of the great names in the NHL. It means bread eater. So Panarin's not the bread man because Manjapane's literally the bread eater continued his performance at the World Hockey Championships with two goals, game winner. 
the, the Canada came back from basically on the scrap heap, and it's 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 amazing. They've advanced to the final with a four two win over the U.S. on Saturday, and he has seven goals and four assists in six games since joining Canada midway through the preliminary round. And as I said, Canada started with three straight losses, but has five wins and a shutout since Machapani was was added to the mix. And Canada's going to play the winner of today's Finland-Germany semifinal in Sunday's gold medal match. You went from the NHL and and you would go and play in the minors and then get traded or hook up with another team. You, you, your love of hockey is very apparent by how much I see you traveled. But you played internationally for Canada. What's What's it like to put on that jersey with the Leaf and – and you, in fact, had played, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, you, after returning from playing in Switzerland, right, you, you played for the Kings after that, but you had played for Team Canada, if I'm not mistaken. So explain your, your motivation and also representing your country. Well, uh, that's, that's a funny thing you brought that up, and, and I, I hope they can pull it off. Uh, 92 was the uh, Albertville uh, under Dave King. I got cut on the way to the Olympics because I had some groin problems and Dave Tippett and Dave Hanna were brought in. So I never got to play in the Olympics. And I it was like, I'm of Greek descent and I've been to the Olympic Village and my family in Greece loves the Olympics and they taught me all about it. I wanted to play on the Olympic uh, team. So coincidentally, after my my Tampa season, I had a bit of a contract problem with the Esposito brothers, and I committed to play on the 94 Olympics going to uh, Lillehammer. That was the year Paul Correa was there and Peter Nedved, and we made it all the way to the finals just like this, and we played Sweden in the gold medal game, and we were up 2 nothing. They made it 2-1. to one. They tied it late with a bad penalty, so we went into overtime, and then the dreaded shootout where uh, Corey Hirsch lost, uh, lost the... Um, the puck and Peter Forsberg slid it by him on that Forsberg kind of drag it behind and they won the gold. But I was so honored. And at the time I, I didn't even want my silver medal that I won, but all these years later, I'm so proud to be a Canadian national player that has a goal has a silver medal in my arsenal. And uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world, even though it's not gold. And especially with the group of guys that we had that uh, we weren't expected like this Canadian team in the world championships to, uh, to be a contender and we made it all the way to the finals and we were that close to winning the gold. Two things before we let you go. First, I don't know if you know this, but okay. so the there was a an interesting and a really cool story that just happened uh recently in the last last little bit here. Uh Taya Curry has made history becoming the first female to be drafted in the OHL priority selection. She's a 16-year-old goalie from Park Hill, Ontario, drafted by the Sarnia Sting, 267th overall, and she's apparently Alliance Hockey's, one of their top goaltenders, and OHL scouts say she's pretty athletic. What do you think of that, a female being drafted first ever into the OHL? Wow, that's that's unreal. I mean, when I was with Tampa, we had Manon Riome who got to play in an exhibition game against St. Louis. So kind of uh, here we go again. And I hope she uh, she's the real deal and she can open some eyes and, uh, you know, do great for women's hockey, whether she ever gets a chance to play in the OHL. But just the fact that she got drafted, that's fantastic. She must have turned some heads. <laughs> she looks like a pretty good player. And 
Last question before we go. At that time when you played for the Lightning at the beginning with Espo, and I believe it was the the uh, Japanese owners, and it was kind of a – it was like P.T. Barnum. It was a bit of a three-ring circus. You weren't even playing in a hockey arena at the beginning. You played in the – State Fairground, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it we was had called like the – well, t- oh, About 11,000 fans, yeah, yeah. And then you played in the baseball park, right, in the quote-unquote Thunderdome. What was it like at the beginning – when you played for the Tampa Bay Lightning those first those first years in Tampa, which was not a traditional hockey market, and you played there in ninety two, ninety three, and it was it was it looked like a pretty interesting time. Well, it's funny because I mean they had we Tampa had so many Easterners that had uh, you know go down there for the winter, snowbirds go down, but uh, there were a lot of Tampa people that kind of got into hockey. And the first game when I scored, I got the the first ever hat trick. Uh, I know that my godfather, Gus Panelitis, had gone down to the glass and he threw his hat onto the uh, ice for the hat trick. And the ushers had grabbed him and said, hey, man, you you can't be throwing stuff on. That's like littering. And Espo had to run up and go, no, 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 it's a hat trick. Like they had to teach them what offsides were and icings. But now look at it. It's like it's one of the premier hockey markets in the NHL. And it's amazing how far they've come. And I'm so happy I was part of that uh, history and the tradition that's there now. Chris, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to be on the program. Thank you so much, my friend, and we wish you nothing but the best health, happiness, and success in the future. I am here anytime for the Joy Vendetta Show. Anytime you need me, you give me a call, and I'll be there. Thank you very All much. Right. Yeah, well, That's awesome, man. Thank you so much. That is Chris Contos here on the program. We're going to take the break and come back, and a guy whose brother is a pretty excellent major league pitcher, but this guy's a real good Major League Baseball analyst who played in the show for a little bit. We'll talk to him about the Blue Jays and their prospects and also his perspective on what's happened to the baseball. First, they juice it. Then they dull in it. If that's even a word, they make it dull. We'll get his perspective when we come back here on the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. The Toronto Blue Jays and the Houston Astros go at it again, 3 o'clock Eastern. Sportsnet 1 on your television, Sportsnet 590 fan on your radio. You can listen to it online as well. And you have to hope that Ross Stripling, who had a 7.20 ERA into late May, but has allowed just one run over 12 innings in his last couple of starts, continues that trend. Because the ERA now is just over five. And after the Jays just got demoed last night, you hope for a bounce-back game, especially from the bats that were extremely quiet. It is my pleasure to welcome to the program right now a man who goes by at Verley32 on Twitter. I recommend you follow him. He's an analyst for Fox Sports, Major League Baseball. He hosts the At Flippin' Bats podcast and subscribes to a model that I do as well. Just be a good person. It's not that hard. His new episode of the podcast features Kyle Tucker, outfielder, for the Astros, oddly enough. 
and talks about playing in a World Series, similarities with an older brother, and a bunch of other interesting stuff. And welcome, Ben Verlander, to the program. How are you, Ben? I'm great, man. How are you? Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, well, I appreciate you taking the time. And also, we asked Ben to to reschedule because we wanted to get him closer to the baseball broadcast. So thank you for, for adjusting your schedule. Let's start off with last night's game for the Toronto Blue Jays, losing 13-1. We know that's an anomaly, but Yunjin Ryu has been nothing but consistent in his Blue Jay career, and he goes up against his old teammate Zach Greinke last night, and he gives up seven hits and six earned runs in just over five innings. And when you're when you're a player, a positional player on a team, and you see your ace get rocked like that and you provide zero run support, what goes through your mind when you're sitting on the bench and seeing your guy who's been great ever since he joined the team and before go through that kind of a game? Yeah, it's just tough. You know, obviously everyone has starts like that over the course of the year, and, and he's a guy that's been – super consistent for, for a while now. So, you know, it's tough to watch a guy, um, you know, from a position player perspective, it's tough to watch a guy that you know goes out and, and gives you a good chance to win every every game, and then he, does, he doesn't. Um, and, you know, you, you try and do more as an offense. You, you try and do a little too much, I think, uh, you know, to, to maybe pick up the slack and uh, you feel bad for the guy and, and you want to do more. So it's, it's tough to watch. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, starts like that are going to happen every once in a while. And, and it's OK. And, 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 you know, next time you go out, he's going to give you a good chance to win and hopefully you put up a little more than one run. Now, Ben, I talked about this before you came on the air. You know, a couple of years ago, the baseball was juiced and now they've deadened it. And there was a great article. I can't remember where it was, but it, it, there was a place in Pittsburgh that some of the pitchers for the Pirates and other pitchers would go to. And it was kind of a a school that taught you how to use foreign substances on baseballs. And we know that there are certain foreign substances that are quote-unquote tolerated to a degree. But this article talked about all kinds of different stuff. What was your experience in in baseball, playing high-level major leagues and playing in the minors at high levels? What was your experience with foreign substances, not just on the ball, but elsewhere in in Major League Baseball? Yeah, you know, it's definitely been a thing that has been around the game of baseball forever, basically. You know, the, the standard uh, sunscreen, rosin, all that good stuff, it, it's been used forever. You know, I pitched in college and it was used there. I came, I was, I played pro ball and was there as a hitter, but I, you know, I, I know what's going on in, in the bullpen and, and pitchers talk and, and it's, it's always, it's always been used. And, and where you get to a problem is what I think we're starting to get to now is guys are seeing where they can push the limit and what they can get away with. And what's going to end up happening is it's going to ruin it for, for everybody that's been doing, you know, just the standard thing forever. Um, I, I would venture to say 90, 90% of pitchers are, are using something. Uh, but, but what we're getting to in today's day and age is we have a few pitchers that are trying to push the limit and come up with these experiments and see just how sticky they can get the baseball 
and it's going to ruin it for, for everybody that's been doing the same old thing forever and ever. Now, when you talk about a guy who looks for an edge, right, and they're willing to use different substances, how much of it, because I've never been at that level, right, and you have, and you've seen different players try to get every edge possible. How much of this is psychological and how much of it actually changes your performance legitimately? Uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a bit of both. It is a psychological thing, and, and it, is, it also changes it a little bit, uh, you know, the results on the field. Uh, and when it comes to this stuff that's happening with pitchers, I think what's going to happen is not only are they not going to have, you know, that little bit of grip they're used to, but mentally it's going to take a toll on them. They're going to go out there mentally and, and realize, oh, man, this isn't, this isn't the same. Uh, am I going to be able to perform the same? And look, man, baseball is is so mental. Ninety percent of the game of baseball is being able to cope with with failing. You know, you look at a hitter and you fail seventy percent of the time, and and you're doing great. Uh, and you look at a pitcher and you have to be okay with failing. Um, so all automatically, uh, the game of baseball is so where where are you at mentally? Are you in a place to compete? mentally are you at the top of your game mentally and i feel like a lot of these guys now aren't going to be at the top of their game mentally because they're going to be a little in their head about hey you know am i still going to have the same stuff when i go out there am i still going to be as good when i go out there without this stuff so yeah it's i think it's going to be a little bit of a combination of both they're not going to get quite the you know the spin on balls they're used to but also mentally, uh, they're not going to be in the same place and as confident. And, and confidence is a huge thing in baseball. Yeah, and you, you bring up a really interesting point, and that is that the failure level in baseball, whether you're a hitter or whether you're a pitcher, can be extremely high. Hitters, if you hit 300, you're a great hitter. That means you're failing 70% of the time. But pitching, it, it, I think this is more of a, I guess, a recent phenomenon. But and, and you correct me if you think I'm 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 wrong or can offer some specific insight, but teams are always looking for inning eaters, right? As we've we've seen in the last several years, throwing over a hundred pitches is, is going the way of of the of the BlackBerry. You know, it's the it's going to become extinct now when you throw over a hundred pitches. I, I think the Jays have only had one pitcher throw over a hundred pitches, and my point is is that. Pitchers are being rewarded even when they're when they're six and twelve. As long as they pitched, you know, a hundred and a hundred and sixty innings, they'll get a reasonable contract. Is that is that a recent phenomenon? When did that start to happen? Because when I remember growing up, if you know, if you weren't sixteen and eleven, then no one cared. At least, right? It just seems mediocrity has become more accepted in the last several years. I think we lost him. Ah, oh, we dropped him. That was such a good question, too. We'll get him back on the line. I want to. I was going to ask him too about Shohei Otani, who's just been Shohei Otani. If you are not familiar, if you're a baseball fan, you're obviously familiar. He plays for the Angels and is just absolutely ridiculous on both sides. This guy is Bo Jackson. I mean, he doesn't play football. He'd probably get crushed if he played in the NFL, but. Man, I was watching him the other night, and his pitching and his hitting 
are and and he battled injuries. That's the crazy part. So anyway, we're going to try and get Ben Verlander back on the line here. Of course, as I said, the Blue Jays are on the bump with Ross Stripling at three o'clock Eastern, and Stripling hopefully has turned around because I've been watching him and he's definitely changed his delivery, definitely changed his pitching style, and it seems to have really, really helped. Uh, I don't know how much of that question you heard, Ben, but I was basically saying when did the the <laughs> phenomenon of mediocrity being heavily rewarded because you eat some innings start to happen in Major League Baseball, or has it always been there? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it hasn't always been there. It, it seems like it's become more of a thing like, hey, you know, we just need guys that are going to get out there and get us innings. And, and I think a lot of that is because, you know, of just the state that, that baseball is in. It's in such a weird place where, you know, pitchers are dominant. And when they're not, it's like they're getting dominated. And you just need guys to go out and be able to give you some innings out on the mound. You know, I, I'm with you. I feel like we didn't hear that term innings eater until about five, ten years ago. I do feel like that's like a new phenomenon that's come across in the last, you know, five, ten years. Okay, before I let you go, a couple of things on the Blue Jays, and then and then we'll let you jump. The Blue Jays' biggest weakness this year has been starting pitching. Knowing what you know about the AL East and the fact that you've got a Tampa team that just is year after year after year, these guys develop prospects, they play in a dump, their fans aren't interested, and they generally lead the American League East. Boston is a surprise this year. The Yankees... Their pitching's not very good either, but if they're healthy, they can hit. The Blue Jays are top five in baseball as far as hitting goes, and they have a couple of decent pitchers, and Steven Matz is going tomorrow, and he's been great. But how far do the Blue Jays go to try and get a, a, a starting pitcher that they can count on consistently if they're going to try and make a run? Because they're in a pretty good spot considering they haven't had Springer all year, and they've had a ton of injuries as far as pitchers go. I feel like they're in a great spot, and I also feel, like, bad for them that they're in such – their division is so incredibly talented. I feel like if the Blue Jays were in a different division, that they'd be in first place, you know? It's, you have to compete with the Rays, the surprise Red Sox, like you said, the Yankees. All of these teams are good. So every game you're going to play on a night-in and night-out basis, you're getting the best in the league. Um, but I feel like they're in a great position with a guy, and, and I talked about it with you before, a guy like, like Springer that hasn't even hardly played this year. He's played in less than a handful of games. Um, they're hopefully going to get him back soon, um, and, and he's going to be that spark plug that makes the team go. So I do feel like they're in a great position to succeed. They're just in a tough division where you can't afford to fall too far, too far behind, which they haven't. Uh, they, they haven't even had – Springer all year, and they're in a good position, which I think is, is something uh, to be happy about if you're a Blue Jays fan. Um, and I do feel like they're in a position where if they go and add a pitcher, and it's not easy. There, there's not a ton of pitchers out there this year that you can get consistency from. Um, you know, I, I thought heading into the year a good trade piece was going to be Luis Castillo from the Reds, but he hasn't had a very good year. Um, so I do feel like once the Blue Jays get Springer back, and if they can go out and add a piece that really helps them, that really can help them, uh, you know, go out every fifth day and give them a quality start and give them a chance to win, 
or a guy that can bolster down the back end of that bullpen, this team is very, very good. And to be where they are right now without George Springer, one of the best players in baseball, uh, I feel like says a lot about the team that the Blue Jays currently have. I feel like we knew the core of this team was good and that they were ready to turn the page, and they did. They have turned the page. And to be where they are right now and to get Springer back soon, I feel like this team is, is capable of taking off. If you're just joining us, our guest is Ben Verlander, at Verley32 on Twitter, Fox Sports Major League Baseball analyst, host of the At Flippin' Bats pod with Ben Verlander. You can follow them on Twitter as well. Ben, before I let you go, Fernando Tatis Jr. is tied for the league lead in home runs with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Ronald Acuna Jr. with 17, despite missing 16 games this season. It's it's pretty mind-boggling. I know how much you love Shohei Otani. Uh, you get to, you're pretty close to him out in California. Who is the best hitter in Major League Baseball right now? I was saying it was Vladdy Jr. His improvement has been mind blowing. Losing that weight seems to agree with him, like it would with most people. But who do you think the best hitter in baseball is? Oh, man, that's such a good question, and and I don't know if I can disagree with you right now that it's. Vladdy Guerrero Jr. I mean, when when you look at the discussion of best players right now, you're right. You get in that discussion of Tatis and Acuna and and all of those guys that, uh, you know, do it well on both sides of the ball, even though Tatis is actually having his struggles on defense this year. But he plays such a premier position. When you start talking about the best hitters in baseball, Vladdy Guerrero Jr. right now is certainly in that discussion. And for me – um, you know, is, is probably uh, my number one pick at this point in the year. You know, with Juan Soto having, you know, not the, not the best year that he could possibly have. I know he's certainly in the discussion for best hitter in baseball. But right now, I really have to look at a guy like Guerrero and, and say, this guy has really turned the page, has become the guy that we all thought he could, and has become, right now, at this point in the season, the best hitter in baseball. I certainly, certainly agree with you right there. Ben, I appreciate your time. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and thank you very much for being on the program. Of course, man. Thank you so much for having me, as always. Appreciate it. Ben Verlander, a fine analyst with Fox Sports and a great podcast host as well. We're going to wrap up the program next with your thoughts, your texts. When we come back, it's the Joey Vendetta Show here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I think one of my favorite memories is taking Felix Bogman to see the offspring like 25 years ago. And then he disappeared. Next time I saw him, I said, what happened to you? And he said, I went backstage with the band. And then I went on their bus and went to the next gig. True story. All right. That does it for the program this week. Thanks to Andrew Holland and Kyle Norris for helping to put it together. Thanks to you for listening and sending your texts. And we're going to get to a bunch of those right now to end the program. Asking you what you would do if you were running the Toronto Maple Leafs. Let's see. Bucky and Kitchener. Great interview with Rob. He sounds like God with that deep voice. We had Rob Baker from the Tragically Hip who played the Juno Awards tomorrow night. They're just called the Hip with Feist. Should be emotional. Should be cool to see the band together without Gord Downey. And with Feist, who is a close friend of all of theirs. And he says, love hearing the journey 
of the hip. Doug and Bradford, Joey V, you need a weekday time slot. I'd like to see Dubas call Calgary, see if a deal involving Hannafin and Kachuk can be worked out. From the 514, Manuela, I rewatched the Shifley hit several times, and I find that it's not a rule book discussion rather than an over-emotional, unnecessary major hit that had nothing to do with the play. That's a good take. From the 403, JR had his job and blew it. He's done. Really doubt Rogers is interested in a tone-deaf host talking about whether Jeremy Roenick will be on the TNT broadcasts. Dan in Toronto, how do you fix the Leafs? Make Nylander cut his hair short to show people there's no room for pretty boys on the team anymore. Kalo in Toronto, really enjoyed the hip interview. Let's see. Bjorn in Toronto, Joey, the Leafs need to make a Masai Ujiri move. Package Riley and Marner for one absolute stud defenseman or top five goalie. You have to shake up the core. Dougie and Hamilton, Leafs to do list. Dubas got us as far as he can. Now you need that veteran GM with that experience who can make those last few moves to make us a true cup contender. You can't win without a stud between the pipes. So sign Rene or Rask. Let Freddie go. Yeah, Rask. You mean the Leaf goalie Rask that they got rid of for Justin Pogge? Yeah, that took a Rask. Uh, we need uh, Dougie Hamilton. Yep. Well, even though he technically wasn't a Maple Leaf, that was the pick used to, to get Dougie Hamilton. Can you imagine if the Leafs had Tuka Rask and Dougie Hamilton? Can you really imagine that? Are you kidding me? From the 416, you need grit in the playoffs. Skaters run out of room, i.e. McDavid and Marner. How about Austin Matthews? He got nominated for the Lady Bing Trophy, along with Spurgeon and Slavin. The Lady Bing Trophy, do they still give that out? I think McGillney got nominated for the late. Man, I'd love to have McGillney on my team again. Joe from Hamilton, predictions. Matthews wins Selkie. Anderson signs with the Pens. Sure. Pittsburgh's nice. Let's see. Grant and Barry. Hey, guys, great topic. I think move Marner, not just because of this year. I understand the business side of the game. I think you can get two players for that money with talent, and we'll play a little chippy. And then the final text comes from Dino Martelli, the drywall master, who says, this is a this is a doozy. Yeah, Leafs suck. Fire everybody. All right, thanks for listening. And as I like to say each and every week, try to be better tomorrow than you are today.